Yeah, yeah, yeah. Internet, it's Mike and Andy. Or Mandy, as we like to say oh, around here. Oh, okay. And, All right. And, well, okay. And, uh, and we're so glad that you're tuning in. Um, today, we have a special episode for you. It is, uh, it is the Gospel Coalition Takedown, according to Andy. This is where <laughs> oh, no. we will single-handedly dismantle <laughs> reform theology. Um, uh, no, we are, uh, we're excited. We've been working on this one. I've been working on this. Andy doesn't do jack no, squat, anything. just to be clear. Um, uh, been working on this one for a while, and uh, we want to talk today uh, about whether or not God causes evil, causes suffering. And uh, this one, some of our podcasts are more cultural in nature. Some of them are more kind of church, aimed at the church. Uh, this one is more theological in nature. Mm-hmm. So there's tons of tons and tons and tons of Bible stuff. If you're a person who, um, like we hear from from many who are, you're kind of outside of the whole Jesus thing, the whole Bible thing. I still think this will be interesting because odds are you've wondered about this question about how Christians answer it. Mm -hmm. And so you get to tune in and kind of an intramural discussion from two different answers about, Mm -hmm. about how God and evil um, relate together. I've always found it as a very common atheist question. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, We're interviewing uh, hopefully a guy named Godless. Uh, I wonder where he stands on, uh, you know, the religious issue mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, in a couple of weeks. So I'm sure that'll come up. Um, so so one of the things that uh, I want to do before we get started is say hello. And um, I want to remind our listeners that there are now two Vox podcasts. So there's one that's this one that's the kind of the Vox Mike Erie podcast slash soon to be Andy Laura podcast. <laughs> And then there, there's another one called the Vox Community Podcast. And those are actually the teachings from Sundays and the stories that we're telling from Sundays from the community, the North Orange County communal expression of the podcast. And so just want to remind you, uh, there is a church that has been born out of this conversation. And um, we're, we're, it's not just enough to critique um, or to criticize. We want to we try some of these things on to see... Um, what God's up to in culture. And so that one, you can go to iTunes and type in Vox Community. Correct. Or voxoc.com and go to gatherings and it's under there. And it's under there. So so just a reminder, we've got two different podcasts going. And if you're ever in the North Orange County area, drop us a line uh, at info at voxoc.com and uh, let us know you're coming. And we'd love to meet you. One church that I'm a big fan of calls, calls uh, the, the people that listen to the church on the web, but don't attend it. He calls them uh, podrishioners, and so, so, um, so evidently, there we're we're seeing from our crack analytic team, Google, that there are uh, lots of you listening. So we're we're just again, as always, thrilled. Um, so I got to give some disclaimers before we get into this. First of all, um, I'm going to be talking today. Uh, I'm going to be talking today at a popular level, not an academic level. So I have a master, master of arts in philosophy, religion, and ethics. I've done a lot of work in the problem of evil, not, you know, and my work is just <laughs> um, taking other people's ideas and, and reformulating them. So nothing, nothing hugely creative or academic, but this has been something I've thought about and I'm aware of all of the counters of all of the people. So, so I'm going to, I'm going to make an argument. 
against a position. And I want you to know I'm aware of all the counters to the arguments I'm giving, at least the, the, the most common ones. And I'm also aware of the counters that I could have for their counters. So I, I, I want you to know we're stepping into a very, very uh, a deep conversation that's happening on several different levels. One, it's happening between followers of Jesus and non-followers of Jesus. Uh, it's happening between uh, followers of Jesus and different kinds of followers of Jesus. And it's happening in academic circles uh, between philosophers, theologians, um, and, uh, and the like. So, so we're not we're not getting into the philosopher theologian bit, uh, although I just want you to know I can do a little of that if we need to. Um, it's more, I want to talk about this on a popular level. So to some degree, uh, my reformed friends could just very easily say, well, yeah, you're just, you're just, you're not even critiquing how nuanced our thinking is. And uh, to some degree, that's, that's true. Uh, but I am critiquing how popularized that nuanced thinking has become. Mm, okay. And um, at that same level, want to uh, bring up some popular uh, thoughts kind of against it. The, the second uh, disclaimer is um, these are, as far as I know, these are decent, good, Jesus-loving people. Uh, I've met a couple of, of the people who hold the position I'm about to critique and um, and as passionately as I would disagree with them, they would disagree with me. And uh, so this certainly is not a make or break issue, but around the lines of making Jesus beautiful, uh, I think this particular representation of um, how God relates to suffering makes makes God very ugly. And, mm. um, and and they would say, my my take makes him ugly and their take makes him beautiful. So I leave that to you. I mean, the goal the goal of Vox, and the tagline we have of of the podcast is it's we want to talk about anything, and so um, one of the one of the most um, disturbing aspects of our current world is that um, clear, confident, gracious exchanges of ideas uh, do not take place, and instead what we have are echo chambers where all we're doing is listening to people we agree safe spaces and trigger warnings where i don't ever have to be uncomfortable or disturbed by an idea that i find offensive um and uh the and the kind of the new tolerance embraced today is way different from the old tolerance and the new tolerance is just hey as long as your ideas fall within the acceptable cultural mainstream no problem if they don't they're out and um, and the name calling, labeling, shaming, you know, ensues. And, and so so um, I think this is a, a great thing. And this is not to disparage the people who hold this, although I think the view itself is really, really damaging. So there you go. I have some dear friends who hold this view um, and and much more nuanced versions of it. So God bless you guys. And um, and when we meet Jesus, you'll see that I was right. So. <laughs> the the thing that got me juiced on this conversation andy was a tweet that i referenced last week in my violation of how to lament kind of publicly well so so a couple of weeks ago three weeks ago there's this group of people called the gospel coalition which is this network of church leaders a network of similar thinkers from the reformed calvinistic tradition in the american church and and broader um, that tweeted out the following, God just doesn't allow suffering, he ordains suffering. Uh, and that's far better news than if he merely allowed it. Okay, so 
then the Orlando nightclub um, shootings happened, and, um, and and I tweeted back at them, well, is this is this still true today, guys? Because because I, I went onto their website, and they had this huge lament about what are the ways we should respond to this tragedy. And, you know, it was, it was um, the news of such violent atrocities comes to us regularly nowadays that we may feel numb, helpless to know what to do or say, but we can't simply shut out the pain and despair. We must bring light and healing. And, and so um, it's interesting. Why would you bring light and healing to an event that God himself ordained? I, I just don't, Again, this is all popular level argumentation, but I don't get, because then because then it's, well, we need to pray. But what do you pray for in this moment? If this happened, because the theology is that this happened so that God gets glory. So so what are we praying here? That God is, I, I'm assuming God's, God gets glory no matter this, but here the examples of the prayer were we abandon ourselves to you, our fears, our anger, our anguish, our lament, our longings. We collapse in your presence. And I'm just like, okay. That's great, but but this is God ordained. Why is this something um, to be fought against, to be grieved, to be prayed for? Um, why not something that's that's celebrated, as some crazy, you know, nut job people do? And now and again, the the really good reform folks have great answers to these, like minor minor issues. But I, I the, it was the juxtaposition that really got under my skin. If it's true that God causes suffering, he ordains suffering on a day when there isn't a big tragedy, well, then it's also true on the day when he does, uh, when there is a big tragedy. And so we want to, I just was like, well, you got to tweet that out today too then, right? Um, Because that's good news. According to you, it's good news that God ordained the gay shooting that the, at the gay club, the shooting of these people, it's good news. And, and it was the exact, it was the people that God ordained um, were, that were being shot. I mean, you have to, if you're going to be consistent, you've, it, it seems like you've got to go there. So they have these five, you know, like pieces of lament to pray, to pause, to not get on social media, um, to grieve. Uh, and, and, you know, some of this is just so incongruent to me, uh, to love, love that one, to hope, but, but what hope, um, what hope is there if God has ordained this and what hope is there if you believe that God has ordained some people to go to hell and other people to go to heaven. And he's done that regardless of whatever choices these people have made. He's done that according and expressly to the counsel of his own will. What, what hope is there other than, well, at least it wasn't me. Yeah, I don't. I, I just don't get that. Now, somebody who very much is at the forefront of the Gospel Coalition is a guy named John Piper, and and, and there are only two people that that are followers of Jesus that I've ever been tempted to punch. One is Mark Driscoll, and I, I I'd still be tempted. And then another one is John Piper. Both of these guys love Jesus, but I cannot stand some of what they say. So. Years ago, uh, Piper was asked this question, and you can find this online. Um, the question was, why, and I'm kidding about the punching, mostly. Why was it right for God to slaughter women and children in the Old Testament? All right. How can that ever be right? So that was the question that was given. And, um, and here was Piper's response. It's right for God to slaughter women and children anytime he pleases. 
God gives life and he takes life. Everybody who dies, dies because God wills that they die. God is taking life every day. He will take 50,000 lives today. Life is in God's hand. God decides when your last heartbeat will be, and whether it ends through cancer or a bullet wound, God governs. So God is God. He rules and governs everything. And everything he does is just and right and good. God owes us nothing. If I were to drop dead right now, or a suicide bomber downstairs were to blow this building up and I were blown into smithereens, God would have done me no wrong. He does no wrong to anybody when he takes their life, whether at two weeks or at age 92. God is not beholden to us at all. He doesn't owe us anything. Now, this is this is the John Piper who, when there are national tragedies, loves to tweet out that this is the result of God's work. So there was a tweet years ago about a, a, a bridge that collapsed, and this was God's judgment on an area. There was a, a tweet about um, uh, a devastating tornado, and... Uh, this guy tweets out uh, a verse from Job about a great wind sent by God that takes Job's family. I mean, it, it's just, even if it were true, it's so stinking tone deaf mm. to the suffering of the world yeah. that you just go, I don't see how Jesus is beautiful here. So so uh, what I want to do is, is I want to, th- those are kind of the things that prompt um my passion to present another another view of these things the and, and the conversation isn't whether or not god is sovereign god is sovereign the the, the scriptures clearly attest to that the issue is how he is sovereign and wh- how does this sovereignty relate to evil to freedom to choice to whatever so again we're not we're not going to get into libertarian free will and determinism or compatibilism and all of those are really fun interesting conversations I have all kinds of opinions on. I want to march I want to march through in the next maybe 25 minutes the overwhelming overarching um narrative of the Bible regarding the fact that I believe that God's will isn't the only will that's done on earth. That there are other wills that are done on the earth besides God's. Okay. And because what 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 Piper here is articulating is a view called meticulous sovereignty. And it's the idea that literally every single thing is determined by God. Every single thing. So so in a different video, he'll he has the example of dust motes. Those a specific dust a fleck of dust in, you know, when you're, when you're, the sunshine is, is coming into your window, that specific dust is put there specifically by God and held there as an act of a sovereign will. And so um, we want to critique this view called meticulous sovereignty because I, I think that it gives non-believers um, loads of ammo. I mean, how can you love, first of all, this sounds just like Islam um, or karma or, or I mean, how, how can you love a God like this if 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 raping is what it takes for God to get glory? Mm. I, I don't I don't get that. But but secondly, I don't I just don't think it represents the broad swath of the Bible. So what I want to do is I want to present the broad swath as I see it. Feel free to disagree. And then and then there are about nine specific passages that I see referenced all the time in response to the argument I'm gonna give. So Job um John chapter 9, Acts chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 1. And and if you're new to the Bible, yeah, I, I realize you're not even going to know what those references mean, but I'm trying to preview the fact that there are counter arguments to whatever I'm going to be saying. And 
uh, and those have to be uh, acknowledged and responded to. The, so, so I'm going to give one overarching story. Someone who holds meticulous sovereignty would give a different overarching story. And the question that we have to ask is people who uh, want to be faithful to the scriptures is which of these views makes the most sense out of the most parts of the Bible. There are some parts that are utterly confusing and holy cow, we can hardly figure out their basic sense, let alone how they fit into larger schemes of things. But which view makes the most sense of the most of the Bible? So to that end, I want to hold that God's will isn't the only will done on earth as it is in heaven. And so um, joy to the world. I know this is thick, heavy uh, sorts of theology, but um, I think there's some some really good points to be drawn out of this conversation. So first, um, before we can ask or answer, why does God permit any particular instance of suffering? Does God permit it, ordain it, allow it, cause it? We have to uh, step back and ask, why did God create the kind of world he created? And what were his intentions in creating the world the way that he did? And so, so you literally start in the book of Genesis, where we first begin. Now, again, if you're not if you're not like into the Bible, some of this stuff is going to sound hokey and crazy. But but whether you reject the Bible or accept it, I, I at least want you to understand the broadest sweep of what what the story the Bible tells about evil and suffering and God's relationship to it. So if you still find that story too outlandish, understood. Um, I think there are good reasons for believing it, but that's a whole different podcast. Make sense, Andy? Yes. All right. So first, uh, the text says God creates. And and in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2, um, God creates the, the physical world and then he creates human beings. And, and, and the text is, is very explicit in marking human persons off separately from the rest of creation. They're still created beings. They're not gods or they're not divine. But they, they have a, a nuance that's not present in any of the other parts of creation. Namely, they bear the image and likeness of God. Now, those are temple words. And, and what, um, what the, the, the kind of the, the reading of Genesis 1 that I, I buy into says that God is fashioning for himself a temple where he will dwell. And that image and likeness, those were words that were used of ancient Near Eastern temples where you would have a statue of or representation of the God to whom that temple was dedicated. So to be image bearers and likenesses of the God means that we're representations of God's divine authority and power and creativity and benevolence is the kind of the idea. Now, here's, here's what becomes very fascinating, Andy Bear. The, uh, the, the picture, so God makes these human persons and then he gives them work to do. So the first command in the Bible is to have sex, which is the, one of my favorite commands, I'm not going to lie. But he says, fill the earth um, and multiply, rule over, uh, subdue, take care, um, serve. I mean, all of, these, all of these words are given to the image bearers uh, to push creation forward. Now, several implications follow from this. One, creation isn't static, it's dynamic, and it's embedded with potential that the human persons were to now bring out 
using their image bearing as a way. So God, and this is the second point that's so massive, that God was was um, delineating, he was delegating some of his sovereignty and authority to the human persons, that he was going to now rule through them, not just by fiat or brute power, but he was now going to work through them. So the first thing, if you've never read John Calvin, if you've never read anything, if you just come to the Bible straight up, you're just going, oh, well, this is interesting. You have a creator God who speaks matter into existence, but now creates some sort of beings that he declares image bearers and gives them work to do. That sounds a lot like the work God was just doing himself. Yeah. Right? So there, God creates there to create. God rests. Later in the story, we read that there to rest. That, um, that God gave them, as part of their image-bearing and creational mandate, gave them agency, the ability to do stuff. And, and we realize there's a connection between the stuff they were to do and what God had done. So they were to be reflections, representations, ambassadors of God's uh, intention and benevolent purposes for the world. Make sense? Yes. So that, that's huge. Mm-hmm. But the second thing we read is that in this in this um, in this world there is a garden and in ancient Near Eastern temples the center of the temple was a garden, so not surprisingly God nestles uh, the man and the woman our primordial parents into this garden, and um, and He gives them one restriction, and that restriction is don't eat of this particular tree. Now, now again, huge debates. Is the tree literal? Is the tree a metaphor? Is the tree symbolic? I mean, what's the significance of the tree? Blah, blah, blah. We can get lost in all of that stuff. But if you're just coming to the Bible fresh, it's undeniable that there, the, the tree represents a choice. To trust or to not trust. Mm-hmm. To listen or to not listen. To submit to an authority greater than oneself or to submit to another authority. And, and so that you have this, uh, you have the appearance of the talking snake, which non-Christians love. And uh, the talking snake tempts uh, the woman, then the man um, into rebellion against God. And it's called rebellion. It's like they did something wrong. It wasn't planned out ahead of time. It was called rebellion. It was, it was you did not listen. Um, again, implying choice and agency. Mm. And, um, and so the, the thing that's fascinating is that they are responsible agents and they bear now consequences. So God judges the ground. He judges the serpent. He judges the man in his work. He judges the woman in childbearing. Um, and, and then he exiles them from Eden away from this tree that they were not supposed to eat of. Um, because there was another tree there that was called the tree of life. And if they ate of that, they would live forever in this sort of fallen state. So that's the Christian story again. I get that it's a bit crazy. But the the point you need to see is the opening chapter is of a God who creates, who wants to rule through people, not around them, not as puppets, but as free agents. He gives them a choice in the garden and they choose poorly and uh, their consequences for their actions. And And this is how the whole story begins now from and th- we're only into the third chapter of the bible cool cool all right what then begins to happen are there these ever widening circles uh of ripples of the result of our primordial parents rebellion so you have um a, a son named cain murdering his brother abel 
And God judges that. It's not like that was God's will, right? God's will was not image bearers murdering each other, all right? Um, you, you have the beginning of technology and industry, but being used for purposes that weren't God honoring. You have, you have such a stew of evil that in Genesis 6, the text literally reads that God regretted he had made humanity on the earth hmm. because they were so full of wickedness. Yeah. Now, again, the, you can read that as anthropomorphic. You can read that as symbolic. But man, if you're just taking the text... You're, you're, you, how can you come away with anything other than the conclusion that God's will wasn't being done on earth? I mean, clearly God's will wasn't being done on earth. So God rescues um, uh, a man, Noah, and his family. He floods the earth. It's, it's the undoing of the creative process of Genesis 1, um, where God subdued the waters. Now he allows the waters to subdue the earth again. And, uh, and, and God saves this one, one family. And even, you know, after they find dry land, they begin to populate the earth. There's still sin. There's still shame. In fact, they, they, even though God calls them to scatter, they bunch up and they build this huge tower. Uh, that's the tower of Babylon. We know it as the tower of Babel, but it's where Babylon, uh, it's what, what would be Babylon in the biblical story. And it's this monument to human arrogance and God, you know, is again grieved and he scatters languages. And again, metaphor, mm -hmm. literal, different conversation. Sure. But the point that you're seeing is that uh, it's a creation spinning outside of control, out of control, wh where God is interjecting uh, God's self into, into the, the, the spiral, um, hedging it, protecting it, judging it seeking to hold parts of redemption. I mean, no, the pulling of Noah, the, I mean, all of those sorts of things till you get to Genesis chapter 12. And then we read of God's brute force sovereignty. God's just unmistakable. This is going to happen sovereignty. Mm -hmm. And he says to a man named Abram, um, leave your parents and uh, leave your father's household and go to the land I will show you. And it's interesting, did God bless Abram in response to Abram's leaving? Who knows? But but God makes this incredible promise that the rest of the Bible is the outworking of. Um, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. Whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all nations on the earth will be blessed through you, Abram. Now, Abram at this point was an old man. His wife was infertile and well past childbearing age. Um, and so thus begins this from Genesis um, 12 to Genesis, I don't know, I think it's 19, maybe 18, uh, of this weird waiting where Abram's going, hey, I don't have a kid yet. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's just, it's a sort of kind of we're waiting on the promise of God, but yet it's not happening quickly. But what you get is you get the first glimpse of God's redeeming intention through the world. And guess what it was? through a human community. Mm -hmm. So how was God going to govern the world in Genesis 1 and 2? Through a human community. Mm -hmm. um, how is God going to now begin to redeem the world? Through a human community. Now, right. could have God done it all himself? Yep. Could he have sustained the universe? Could he have kept Adam and Eve from sinning? Could he have not put a tree there? Could he have not allowed the talking snake there? I mean, yes, he could have done all of those things. He did not, right. which means there was some overriding thing that God valued more than any other thing. And mm. we'll get to that in just a moment. Mm. Now, once you hit Genesis 12, then you get into a series of biblical stories 
that um, are stories of, of what's called the patriarchs. It's Abraham, it's Isaac, it's Jacob. They're fallen, they're screwed up, they cheat, they lie, they steal, they, they're immoral in some ways. And yet you see God's sovereignty, even in the midst of their brokenness, he's moving, he's going to accomplish his purposes. This was an unconditional covenant promise he made to Abram. And yet the free choices of, of these guys show that they're not particularly the most righteous people on the earth. And, you know, they're, they're not perfect and blah, 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 blah. Uh, and, and then you get to instances where God creates uh, this um, God creates uh, a tribe out of the line of Abraham. So uh, Abraham gives birth to Isaac. Isaac gives birth to Jacob. Jacob is renamed Israel. Jacob has 12 sons that are considered the, the uh, forerunners of the 12 tribes of Israel. And now Israel becomes a nation in the first part of the whole promise becomes true. There's a great nation out of the descendants of Abraham. They find themselves enslaved in Egypt. God rescues them. Miraculous displays of power. But he does it again through human agent. Right. Right. Moses and Aaron and the stick. I mean, God could have done it by himself. God is always looking for cooperative participants, always and forever. And this is so central to understanding his relationship to evil in the world. God is not meticulously holding every single decision and predestining it from before the foundation of the earth, because that would prevent cooperative participants from ever existing. What God's looking for is cooperative participation in his work. So how does God redeem Israel? Through um, human persons. Mm -hmm. And so he rescues this tribe. He brings them into the desert. He gives them 613 commands called the Torah, the law. Hmm. And he makes with them a covenant. This covenant is different than the one that we just saw in Genesis 12. That one is called an unconditional covenant. And that is, this is going to happen no matter what. The conditional covenant God gives Israel is, hey, um, if you will follow my laws and decrees, you will be blessed and you will be brought to the promised land and you will stay there. You will be, you know, the, your diseases and you, your crops will flourish and, and, you know, it will be a place of justice. If, however, you rebel it or forget and go chasing after the worship of other gods, then I will bring covenant curses onto you. Now, this was totally standard for how kings would make covenants with um, their subjects in the ancient Near East. This is totally, this is like legal documentation. It's totally legit for how things were thought of at the time. Totally makes sense. But the issue is that the rest of the Old Testament unfolds with Israel at the center and with God sometimes bringing disaster upon Israel as part of the Old Covenant. Mm -hmm. So there are times he'll bring a plague. There are times he'll use uh, another nation to punish Israel, uh, even though he'll then punish the nation because that's what they were going to do anyway, but God uses it. Um, it it's, it's a fascinating like ebb and flow of God redeeming and God disciplining until finally the nations are sent into exile. Only one, uh, kind of one, two and a half tribes at most come back to the promised land. I mean, it's this epic story of, of, of God's fidelity to his promise, even in the midst of how crazy the people of God are. So the Genesis 12 unconditional promise is the through line, but we see the outworking of it 
in the conditional promise of, hey, if you walk with me, you're blessed. If you don't walk with me, you're cursed. Now, what people want to do, particularly advocates of meticulous sovereignty, is they want to pull Old Testament passages about how God brought this calamity upon Israel mm-hmm. and say, see, see, this is what God does. So, so, and they want to draw a straight line from that to, you know, um, um, Hurricane Sandy or Hurricane Katrina or 9-11. That could not be more mistaken. We don't live under a conditional covenant in the same way that Israel did. Israel was God's uh, God's people. He was their king. And even God's kingship becomes mediated through a human king, even though that wasn't God's original plan. Right. The king becomes corrupt. Israel becomes corrupt. God is invoking the covenant curses always with an eye to redeeming and restoring his people to be the salt and light of the world that he'd originally intended, right? So instead of becoming people of the answer, Israel becomes people of the problem. And and so the Old Testament ends with, with all, of, all of this sort of, you have two themes. One theme is disaster has befallen Israel. People of the, the answer become people of the problem. And you begin the, to get the threads, particularly in the later prophets, of something called the eschatological hope of God's intervention. And eschatology is the study, the ology, the study of the eschaton, which means the last or the end. And so um, you begin to get, as Israel is, is, is going through all of this turmoil, over hanging over it all is God's unmistakable, unconditional sovereign promise to bring good out of Israel so that is all, all the nations will be blessed. Mm-hmm. So what you have are the prophets decrying Israel's um, injustice and their sin and their idolatry, and at the same time, promising a great redemption and restoration coming in the future. And there will be a time when lions will lay down with lambs and children can play near snakes and be safe and, and, and peace will be done and there'll be no more poor, no more suffering or death and there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. You begin to see this incredibly prophetic kind of themed and, and underlying those prophetic themes is again the idea that the world now isn't the way God intended it. Mm-hmm. Right? You, I don't know how you read eschatology the idea that there will come a day when God will make things right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If God's doing what he's doing now and that's, what's right. Sure. I I don't, I don't see how those two things fit together. I know I'm doing a lot of talking, Andy. No, this is great. I'm preaching. Looking at like that kind of that that point right there. When, even when you're, when we go back to look at the flood story, you know, there, you know, the references in there of why the flood had to take place. Yep. You know, like they're in it for, for those obviously who don't read the Bible. This is all crazy talk, but it's like, you know, there was this thing called a Nephilim, which was basically a demonic. Oh, don't angel. go there. Don't go there. <laughs> you know, so Good Lord, right, don't do it. We're not. But it's that if that was God's plan, why even do the flood? Right. Because if like, well, I'm going to come into this and interject this. Well, the flood is the answer to that, that happening. And I needed to wipe that out. It just, it seems like that just sounds like working backwards. Right. So even that tiny note in my mind is like, I don't, I can't even right. make sense of that one thing in right. that way. But, so, so well. now, you know, even as the story is unfolding, there are instances where God is unilaterally decreeing things, mm-hmm. but those seem to be the exceptions rather than the rules. And he's doing it within a covenant framework mm. where all of this had been agreed upon earlier. Right. Right. Yes. And so, and so I just go, okay, if we want to assume that's the way God does things now, um, I don't. I, I don't think that 
that is supported in any way, shape, or form mm -hmm. by New Testament teaching. Now, so we'll get to all the objections, but this yeah. is a huge deal. Yeah. Um, so so the, the Old Testament ends with these two things. Israel is part of the problem now, and there is hope. That God is going to do two things. There's a God, God's going to do something soon. And then someday there'll be this re-putting together and reformatting of everything the way God initially intended it to be. So here comes Jesus, God in human flesh, um, Jesus. And, and, and it's important to note from the very beginning that, that the way the Bible presents Jesus, the way the later New Testament writers present Jesus, is that Jesus is the clearest, most definitive um, representation of what God is like. In other words, um, you know, we, we, it, Jesus is called the form, the visible form of the invisible God. He's called uh, the exact representation of God's being and the radiance of his glory. And those words in Greek are so powerful, meaning that if you want to know what God's inner character is like, this this is what God looks like, all right? Mm -hmm. This is the inner character of God. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you've got Jesus saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You've got Jesus um, uh, uh, claiming um, to, to be in, in some incredible ways divine, right? He claims to forgive sins. He, he says in John, um, you know, before Abraham was, I am as if, as if claiming the title of I am from Exodus three for himself. I mean, you have, you have this big mix of, of things, but the way, the way the gospels portray Jesus and the way the rest of the new Testament portrays Jesus is that Jesus is the determining, uh, as the author of Hebrew says, God has spoken in many ways, in many times, but he's spoken now in his son, hmm. meaning that the revelation of God in Christ is the better revelation of God than any of the other revelations. Hmm. All the other revelations are true. They're inspired. They're just not the exact representation of God's being. Hmm. Now, I think that is undeniable. So when you look at the ministry and life of Jesus, do you see Jesus living as if all of this was ordained by his father? Or do you see Jesus living and moving as if there, this was a place of battle? And the, and the answer clearly when you read the Gospels is that Jesus saw this as a place of con contested battle. So we're going to talk now about Satan and demons. A word to our non-Christian listeners. Um, it is no great jump if we believe in a disembodied person named God, to believe that in other disembodied beings um, that, that are good and evil. Um, I, I believe in, um, <laughs> Hannah, my daughter's trying to sneak into the Vox office to grab mom's iPad. And very subtly, hi Hannah, hi. there she is. Um, and, and, and so the reason I believe in, um, disembodied beings called angels and, and disembodied beings called demons, Nady, get back up there, get up there. You both don't get to come down. Stay, stay quiet in your closets. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I've given big, you water. Big fans of Harry Potter, by the way. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> under the stairs, there is a closet under our stairs too, where they, where they go. Yeah. Um, so, so. I believe, I believe I can fly. I also believe I can touch the sky. I believe that there are demons and angels um, because uh, Jesus did. And Jesus, um, my entry into the Bible isn't the Bible. My entry into the Bible is Jesus. Mm -hmm. 
and my entry into Jesus comes from the Bible, but it comes from the Bible as historical documents, not as the inerrant inspired word of God. So you have four historical documents, many others, 80 others, I think, uh, last count other gospels. And do they present some sort of historical picture of this, of this person that existed? If yes, then do I believe that the gospel accounts are accurate? If yes, then the, the Jesus portrayed there is more than just a prophet, more than just a wandering kind of sage. Um, and then I go, okay, well, if this guy actually knows what's going on, that I want to see the world the way he did. And one of the most significant ways he saw the world is he saw the world as under the influence of someone he calls the adversary. And it's Ha-Satan. It's the accuser, the adversary. And um, and so Jesus, Jesus calls this, this person, this being, he calls him the archon of the world three times in the book of John. The archon is the supreme ruler over a piece of real estate. So the archon of this world means this is the ruler over this piece of real estate. Jesus, in responding to an accusation that he was in league with Hasetan, says that this being has a kingdom and that what he is doing is he is binding up the protector of Satan's kingdom and plundering it when he's liberating people. Jesus is rebuking storms. He is rebuking fevers. He's healing diseases. He never once, once attributes these things to the sin of the people. He never attributes these things to uh, the work of his father. The image that you get is that Jesus is compassionate and sees the work of his adversary at work in the world and is doing everything he can to reverse the effects mm. of evil and suffering in the world. So mm. he's raising people from the dead. He is, um, he's healing, he's restoring, he's, um, he's serving outcasts, he's ministering. I mean, it's, it's, he's casting out demons. I mean, you read the first five chapters of Mark and it's literally, and then demons said this, and then demons did 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 this. Wherever Jesus was, demons would manifest themselves and warfare would take place. And Jesus couches that warfare as a battle over territory. That when, when the kingdom of Jesus advances, this dark kingdom is being pushed out. Again, and, and, and then Jesus has the temerity to pray, to teach us to pray that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, and the very popular question is, why would he ask us to pray that God's will be done on earth as it, as it is in heaven if God's will were already being done on earth? The implication, I mean, and even Luke, Luke writes, Luke interjects, he's one of the gospel writers, he interjects something in Luke 7, he says, and the Pharisees and the scribes rejected God's plan for them. I mean, the whole undercurrent is that, that, that people are making decisions and that they will be held responsible for those decisions and that what God, how is Jesus going to save the world? He's going to save it through a human community, right? So how, how did God want to administrate sovereignty through our first parents and through human persons? How does he gather, what does he do when, when evil seemingly has reached its zenith? He calls Abram and says, I'm going to form you into a community of persons. What's Jesus do when Jesus shows up? I'm going to form you into a community of persons, right? Mm -hmm. This is the way it always works. Always. God's always looking for cooperative participants. And so the whole ministry of Jesus is framed around the understanding that 
God's will isn't being done everywhere on earth as it is in heaven, right? Mm -hmm. And and so you have all sorts uh, of examples. You have Jesus weeping over Jerusalem as he's coming and he knows, he knows that same Jerusalem is going to kill him. And he weeps over it, saying, if you had only known this day, what would bring you peace? Hmm. Now, lurking behind Jesus' weeping is the unmistakable sense that Jesus has that he has been predestined to go to the cross. Yeah. Right? Right. Sovereignly. Right. Why? Because it's an outworking of the unconditional promise of Genesis 12. Mm-hmm. Okay? Now, yeah. now... You, so the thread of Genesis 12 is pushed forward all the way into Paul and Paul's understanding of the church. This was the unmistakable promise. This is the thing that God will do no matter what. This is his divine fiat. This is how good wins. This is how the story ends. No question. The world will be blessed through Israel. Here comes Jesus of Nazareth. Boom. Okay. So Jesus is very aware that people are choosing, but he's also aware that he's destined to die in Jerusalem. Why? Because mm-hmm. that's the outworking of Genesis 12. Mm-hmm. That's the unconditional promise mm-hmm. that, that, that frames the whole Bible, even while people are making all these crazy choices. Make sense? Yeah. Now, here comes Jesus, and we could, spe- we could say so much more. Oh my goodness, so much more. There's one guy named David Bentley Hart. He's an Orthodox theologian and philosopher who's written some stuff in in response to John Piper that I just think is so unbelievably brilliant. But here's what he says. And this is the best summary of my argument. He says, if it is from Christ that we are to learn how God relates himself to sin, suffering, evil, and death, it would seem that he provides us little evidence of anything other than a regal, relentless, miraculous enmity Sin he forgives, suffering he heals, evil he casts out, and death he conquers. And absolutely nowhere does Christ act as if any of these things are part of the eternal work or purposes of God. Boom! Now, not only does Jesus act this way, but the rest of the New Testament does too. Mm-hmm. Okay, so for instance, now again, we're getting bible I'm sorry. I can't believe you. But dang it, <laughs> I can't help myself. <laughs> So Paul, Paul is thought to be the clearest adherent to meticulous sovereignty. So Romans 9, we're going to have a whole podcast just probably on Romans 9. That's the very famous predestination one. And uh, it actually makes the opposite point than, than, than people normally say. So it, it's really, it's, that's going to be a fun one. But Paul clearly understands sin and death to not be God's plan. And here's proof. All right. 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul's talking about the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead and the end of all things. This is a chunky passage, so I'm going to read the whole thing slowly, point out a couple of big parts, all right? Um, So if you're following along, it's 1 Corinthians 15, 20. He's responding to people who say, dude, Jesus was never raised because the dead are not raised. We know dead people stay dead. Paul's like, no, 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 no. How can you say... No, no, no. Jesus was raised. If he wasn't, then we're toast. The whole Christian thing is toast. He said, um, indeed, but Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. In other words, he's the first part of the, uh, of the harvest of the general resurrection that's coming. So in Jewish theology, and Jesus reinforces this, there is a general resurrection where we none of us stay physically dead. 
we're reunited with our bodies. And then there's this judgment that we can talk about another time that, that corresponds then to either exile or homecoming, depending. Ooh. Now, um, and that gives you an insight into hell, you know, how, how hell might be framed. But anyway, all that is to say, but Christ has been raised, the first fruits of those who fall asleep. Um, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man, which is, again, so interesting. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Our universalist brothers and sisters have a field day with that one. Mm-hmm. But each in turn, Christ, who is the first fruit, will be made alive. Then when he returns, those who belong to him. Now this is where it gets juicy. Then the end will come when Christ hands over the kingdom of God to the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Those are three ways of saying that other wills are at work in the universe. Do you understand Mm -hmm. that? Yes. That have to be destroyed by Jesus. And, And then... For Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And then, boom, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So when John Piper just says, yeah, Jesus, God just kills whoever he wants to kill. You're going to die. Doesn't matter. God kills 50,000 people today. Blah, 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 blah. I just find that so irresponsible. To, to the idea that death is somehow part of God's plan in glorifying himself. Now, death is presented as the consequence of human rebellion. It is not presented as part of God's plan. And here, Paul calls it an enemy, an intrusion on God's plan. Mm. God can use it. God redeems it. For those in Christ, you don't have to be afraid of it. But it is not something that we can just blithely look at and say, hey, God can slaughter anybody who he wants to slaughter. He's God. And and, mm-hmm. and by definition, because it's God, he can do whatever he wants and we have to call it good. Mm-hmm. No, mm-hmm. no. Paul doesn't present that thought. Paul says, no, 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 Jesus has to reign until all other wills are brought back into submission. And then he will hand the, the kingdom over to his father. Yeah. And the last enemy to be defeated is death. And why is he talking about death here? Because he's talking about the resurrection of the dead. Mm. And so once, once everyone's resurrected, there's no more death. Right. So, so, that, so that's the thought. Then you have Paul's view of this, this, this Satan. Here, here titles Paul has for Satan. Tell me if you think this sounds like this is God's plan. Satan is called the God of this age. Satan is called the ruler of the kingdom of the air. In John, all right, in 1 John, um, John calls uh, Satan, the, he, he says, the son of man, Jesus, came to destroy the devil's work and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. <laughs> so, so you're just going, now, now again, our Calvinist brothers and sisters have responses to all of this. And they'll point to eight or nine passages that seemingly teach the opposite. Now, if, let's say those eight or nine passages do teach the opposite, the preponderance and the undercurrent of the story I think the scriptures tell is so overwhelming that even if the reformed meticulous sovereignty folks were right on these eight or nine passages, well, then I'd say, okay, that's great. That's the exception rather than the rule. Um, because the rule seems to be, and then I would unpack the kind of sovereignty that I see God exercising. So now this, now this big story, how, how, how far along are we, buddy? 
55 minutes. Oh my goodness. Okay, dang it. Dang it. Ah, there's Okay. <laughs> Bro, we're literally on page 7 out of 34 pages. <laughs> Of study notes I put together. Oh, okay. So well, this is a five-part series. No, I guess. <laughs> no, I don't want to do. I want to. I, I don't want to do in this forum too much theology, just because. Um, uh, I know that there are some folks who just don't aren't buying the whole Bible thing. Yeah. But, um, I do think it's so unbelievably important when we're tweeting out, because here's how it plays with me and 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 you differently, Andy. I remember, and we'll end on this. I remember sitting down when we found out about our boy Seth, and and we've talked about how you know at first we were bummed, and um and and a buddy of mine was was doing the Calvinist line. He's like, well, isn't it comforting to know that God gives you this special son? Mm-hmm. And I said, what do you mean he gives me this special son? Do you mean he's got some? He's got some extra chromosome kids up there and he's just looking around for good parents. Yeah. I mean, is that is that what you're saying? Hmm. I don't I don't believe God gave me a kid with Down syndrome. I so I said I said let's I said let's play this out. Why would he give me a child with Down syndrome? Well, it could be to teach you something. It could be to, Okay, so my kid um has this abnormality. A lot of a lot of these uh kids don't live to to be uh age-old adults. Uh, a lot of them have heart problems. They get leukemia. God's going to give me one of those so that I can learn something. No matter what suffering comes to this kid, so that I can learn some lesson. Or God's glory is going to be revealed. Uh, I just said, I, I I think it's far more comforting to believe that the world is fallen. And every aspect of the world is fallen. And I think, I think the Bible so clearly teaches the fallenness of the world. That 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 dna is fallen and that ge- genetics are fallen mm-hmm. and that and that tectonic plates are fallen i mean i think the the scriptures portray that because the earth was meant to be ruled by human persons that when human persons fell so did the earth i mean that's the biblical teaching right. And with what you said, that if if a certain amount of sovereignty is handed over to humanity that was the sovereignty in which then started that course correct and and you can you can make some arguments that a certain amount of sovereignty was handed over to something Paul calls the principalities and the yes, powers. Yes, right. Our right. battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers. Mm-hmm. And then he proceeds to name ancient hierarchies of demons and spirits. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you just go, you know, okay, if you want to say, hey, we're too modern for this, we're too, we, you know, we're too enlightened for that kind of nonsense. Okay, that's fine. If you want to say um nope all satan does is god's command and and satan can't do anything without asking permission and and that's based on one verse in job which is a notoriously difficult book to understand and and it's certainly not teaching i think what everyone thinks it's teaching um I, i just go no i think i think what the bible is pointing out is that that there are things going on here that are not God's will, mm-hmm. and that God is at work through human com- communities to um, use those human communities in their brokenness and even in the midst of their evil to fulfill the unconditional promise he made in Genesis 12 to put the world back to the way God originally intended. Mm-hmm. And so um, next podcast... Um, We'll go over some of these other passages. And again, man, it'll be Bible-y. 
It'll be thick. Um, kind of like uh, my body. Um, <laughs> we hadn't we hadn't done one yet the whole episode. I know. So I I'm sorry. I got to take a, I take a shot. I'm trying, Andy. I'm exercising twice a day, hey. and the gut's still there. Hmm. What's going on? Hmm. What's going on, Andy? Diet. Shut up. <laughs> Don't ever say that word to me. <laughs> and, and not in the not in the the traditional form of oh, you need to go on a a diet, right? which just sounds like eat less. <laughs> You know, it's, right. it's what, just what you eat. In oh, mind. okay. I mean, I'm not on a great diet. Shut up. I just shut up. I don't know. Now this is podcast number 35. No one, no one thought we could make it this far. <laughs> we are now at the podcast number of my age, which oh. feels so good. <laughs> Halfway to 70. It's beautiful. Um, all right, Andy, anything you want to add? No, I, I want to see where the rest of these go. I, I, have, I, I, I kind of came under some of, uh, this understanding through um, through a different book where I, everything you're saying is actually in alignment with that. So I was like, oh, this, oh, is, what book, this is great. What book was it? Uh, Bill Johnson's When uh, When Heaven Met Earth huh. from Bethel. Huh. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of consistency with everything you're saying. So. Mm. Yeah. Well, there you go. So so um, we'll deal with um, a lot of the uh, passages that seemingly contradict to the story we've given and uh and we'll go on from there we'll try not to make this like four or five or six weeks although it would certainly be tempting um so wherever you are however you are today i want you to know uh god is for you god is with you that there is no such thing as a secular place of employment there's no such thing as a secular part of your day the whole thing is lived in the presence of god and um, for those of you who are on the part of the marginalized communities, uh, you're an atheist, an agnostic, uh, part of the LGBTQ community. Um, you're you're um, uh, somebody that um, traditionally has not been welcomed in. We're so glad you're eavesdropping over some of these conversations because mm-hmm. our goal is always is to show that Jesus, if Jesus is the definitive picture of God, then uh, and Jesus is beautiful then um, it's really good news indeed. Yeah. And uh, the last thing we want to do is attribute to God the what his enemy ends up doing mm-hmm. in the world. And yeah. so uh, to our reformed brothers and sisters, bless you and uh, let's do our little uh, let's do our little uh, benediction, shall we? Atheist, you can turn off now. Um, <laughs> may the Lord, although although if you're an atheist, you might as well at least, like take the chance that maybe God's listening sure. and real, and maybe this this spills over into you. So, Lord, may the Lord bless you and keep you, atheists. May the Lord shine His face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance to you, and in these days would He give you peace. See you later. Until next time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Vox, the Mike Geary podcast. Be sure to like Mike on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash official Mike Erie. Follow Mike on Twitter and Periscope at Mike Erie for live interaction and ongoing Q&A. Don't forget to visit subversivekingdom.com for further engagement and information about Mike.